This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Our scripture reading comes this morning from Psalm 51. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion. In your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. Please be seated. So this month at New City, we are learning a new language together. We're learning the language of prayer, the language of the Psalms. Now, the Psalms actually tutor us in this language of prayer. Well, maybe you might be asking, why is that? Well, Athanasius, one of the most important early church theologians, says it like this. The rest of scriptures speak to us. The Psalms speak for us. And so as we learn this language, we learn the language of prayer the same way that you learned whatever language you speak. We most likely had our mother or father or caretaker that would would take us in their hands and they would speak words to us, right? In this excited anticipation that one day we would take those words into our own mouths and with our own lips we would articulate them back to our father. And that's how we learn language. And so likewise, the book of the Psalms is where our father stoops down to our level 
where he holds us in his hands, he looks us in the face, and he speaks words to us with the hope and the expectation that we would take those very words on our own lips and repeat them back to him in prayer. John Calvin says, it's God baby talking to us. And so as we look at the Psalms and as we learn to pray this language, we learn how to give voice to parts of our souls that we don't know how to, how, how to give voice to otherwise. Now, I memorize Psalm 51 because there are times when I need words to articulate my soul out of the depths. And the Psalms, as we pray them, create well-worn paths in our hearts to God. Now, I want to ask, where do you find language when your heart is heavy with guilt? How do you speak when your tongue is bound with shame? How do you articulate your desperate need for mercy? There's few better places to go than Psalm 51. And so as we look at Psalm 51 this morning, I wanna look at it and we're gonna see uh, two things. First, that healing brings happiness. And second, that happiness brings heralding. Now, I said heralding, like hark the herald. One time I said that word, and somebody thought I said heroin, and they were going the entire sermon under the guise that I was using the word heroin the whole time. And I refused to make that same mistake <laughs> twice. And so heralding means to proclaim, to announce, to declare. And so again, healing brings happiness, and happiness brings heralding. Now, if you would look with me at Psalm 51. It was on the screens, it's in your Bibles, it's not in the worship folder, but there's an intro to Psalm 51. And it says this, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now, most of the psalms actually don't really have a backstory very clearly laid out for us like this one. And it's actually a good thing. The reason why is because the Psalms, from their very inception, were intended to be fitting for all kinds of people in all kinds of circumstances. And Psalm 51 is no different, but the reason I think that the author, David, includes this inscription above the Psalm is so that we get a real picture of what's going on when these words came from the mouth of David. And so as you all know, David, the the skinny little heart-playing shepherd boy who killed Goliath with a rock. He grows up, and, and when he grows up, he becomes the king of Israel. And in about 1,000 BC, uh, the Israelites are at war with the Ammonites, okay? And this whole story is told in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. So you can fact check it if you'd like. But as their valiant king, David was supposed to be on the battlefield alongside his warriors, leading them into battle. And he wasn't. In fact, the text says that he was sitting on his couch. I'm not lying. It literally says that. And I can't help but think, remote in one hand, Netflix binging, Cheetos fingers, crumbs on his shirt, just like lounging while his warriors are out at war where he belongs. And so as we read this story, we should immediately be thinking, something's not right here. Kings are supposed to be with their men on the battlefield. And so as we read on, we see that David got off his couch one day, and, and he was strolling on the roof of his palace, and he happened to look over, and he sees a woman bathing naked outdoors. Probably not a good idea. But David sees her, and he says to his servant, bring her to me. Pause. 
I think, and this is just conjecture, I think this was premeditated. I think the reason David wasn't at war with his soldiers was because he had been here before. Because the seed of lust had gotten rooted in his heart and it was growing into a far greater problem. And so he says to his servant, bring her to me. And the servant with this kind of passive aggressiveness says something along the lines of, "Um, sir, king almighty, isn't that Uriah's wife Bathsheba? You know, Uriah, your valiant comrade. You know, Uriah who's off fighting the Ammonites. You know where you should be. And, And there's this kind of, passive aggressive hey maybe this isn't a good idea and David says I don't care bring her to me and David sleeps with her and Bathsheba gets pregnant now David has a problem on his hands because in nine months people are going to start asking some questions and so with this predicament he formulates a plan plan a he invites Uriah off the battlefield Brings him home, says, hey, you know what? You've been working so hard. You've been fighting and whatnot. Why don't you take a little bit of time off? Go spend some time with your wife. Do what soldiers coming off the battlefield like to do. Enjoy time with her. And Uriah says, sir, king, I could not do that to my countrymen. My comrades are at battle, and they don't have tents to sleep in. How could I go sleep in the same bed with my wife? And so he sleeps on the porch of the king's palace that night. Plan B. David says to Uriah, hey, listen, come on over. We'll hang out. I'm gonna get a vintage wine out of the cellar. We're gonna kick back, tell some war stories. Let's do this together. You know, let's have a good time. Uriah comes over. They drink. One leads to two. Two leads to 10. And Uriah is drunk. And David says, why don't you go home, spend some time with your wife? Uriah says, distrusting himself, I couldn't do that. And so he doesn't go home, he stays. Plan C, David writes a letter, gives it to Uriah, says, hey, go take this to the battlefront to your commander. And little did Uriah know, the letter told the commander to put Uriah on the front lines where the fiercest warfare was happening, where the most beastly battle is actually occurring. And as soon as it gets, as intense as it's going to get, to retreat and to pull back all the troops except for Uriah. Now, you don't have to be a scholar in ancient war tactics to know this isn't going to end well for Uriah. And so sure enough, David and Bathsheba get news that Uriah has been killed in battle. Bathsheba is crushed. David is relieved. And so he takes Bathsheba as his wife. It's the least he could do. End of story, right? But we read in 2 Samuel 11, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so a prophet named Nathan was sent on behalf of God to go speak to David. And and Nathan goes to him and he says, King, a wise one, I need your advice on, on something here real quick. So there's two men, one who is super rich, just bankrolling in flocks and flocks of sheep, and another one who is dirt poor. I mean, so broke. He has one little lamb, but this one little lamb means the world to him. 
this one little lamb, he coddles it and cuddles it and, and he lets it eat at his table and he lets it share his toothbrush and they, it eats out of his cups and drinks out of his bowls. Literally, I, the text actually says that, not the toothbrush thing, but the bowls. And, and, and he loves this lamb, it says, as his own daughter. And the rich man with all of the flocks of sheep had a friend coming into town. So being courteous and hospitable, he takes the one lamb from the poor man, slaughters it, serves it up for dinner to his guest. And Nathan says, David, what should we do about this? And David, true to character, it says that he was greatly kindled with anger, says, as long as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. And Nathan looks at him, he says, you are the man. And immediately David is crushed by the weight of his own sin and guilt. And David tears his clothes and he cries out, I have sinned against the Lord. It's amazing to me how 2020 David's vision uh, of the sins of others was, but how blind he was to his own sin. And as Nathan speaks to him, he says this, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. This is an outrage. I hope you feel how paradoxically unjust this is. Ask Uriah what he thinks about this. Ask Uriah thinks about how David lustfully looked at his wife and then abused his power to rape her and then lied about the whole thing to cover it up and had him murdered in the process. How does Uriah feel about the Lord putting away David's sin? How is it that God can do this? How can God be displeased and yet dismiss? And as you feel the tension of that for David's story, how can God do that for you? How can God do that for me? And so I wanna let you sit in that for a little bit while we look at David's prayer. While we actually look at Psalm 51 and see after this occurred, how did David cry out to God for mercy? And then looking at this, we're going to see that healing brings happiness. Look with me at verse 1. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to my impeccable CBR reading record. No, he doesn't. Have mercy on me, O God, according to the fact that I'm typically an excellent parent. I just got really frustrated. He didn't say that. Have mercy on me, O God, according to the fact that I'm typically usually a fairly faithful husband. Mm -mm. No, David knows that if there's any hope for mercy, his goodness, his track record doesn't count for anything. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and your abundant mercy. He knows that there's, if there's any hope for him, the mercy, the love has to come from outside of himself that the grounds for forgiveness cannot be within him. And I wonder, have you gotten to that point? Have you gotten to the point where you realize that you're low enough to where you can't hope in you anymore? That it's according to his steadfast love and mercy, not according to your goodness and righteousness. And David goes on, he says in verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, until recently, I used to ride a motorcycle exclusively. 
It was the only form of transportation I had. And one of the things that's interesting is you walk places, you've always got a helmet with you, and people are like, oh, you ride a motorcycle. And one of the first things they'll say is, I was driving on I-4, and I saw the most heinous accident, and this motorcycle was like in the trees, and it was just gruesome everywhere. And I'm sitting there with my helmet and hands, just like, why would you do this to me? Like, who is this helping? But it was almost this like knee-jerk response. People just did this all the time. And you know those stories that when people uh, really get incredibly hurt on a motorcycle, they have what's called road rash. And doctors have to take tweezers and scrub to get every bit of grit and grain out of their skin. Otherwise, it would be infected and they could die. This is what David's asking for. Don't hold back, Lord. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me deeply. Get it out because this sin sickness is only going to get worse unless you do the deep work. And he goes on in verse 5. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now David is saying this is deeper than, than surface level. And it's interesting that David uses I was born this way not as an excuse for sin but to show the depths of the evil in his own heart. In fact, he doesn't use, I was born this way to justify what he's done, but rather to confess how deeply he is in need of mercy. And so he goes on in verse seven to say, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And so we hear him crying out in in awareness of his own need, God blot out Wash, purify, cleanse, clean, scrub. Do what you have to to get this out of me. Now, I've shared this story before, uh, so some of you have heard it, but my very first job, I was a dishwasher at a Mexican restaurant. And Mexican food is great. Being a dishwasher there is horrible because cheese actually gets baked onto plates and doesn't come off very easily. And so I would be sitting there scrubbing, 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 and it would take me forever to get all these plates clean. And one particularly, it was probably like Nachos Supreme or something. I could not get the cheese off this plate. And my supervisor, dishwasher supervisor, comes over and he says, you've been working on that for a while. I was like, yeah, man, it's hard. And he said, okay, this is what I do when it gets like that. And he takes the plate from me. He's like, just follow me. He walks out the back of the store and he frisbee throws the plate into the field behind the restaurant. It's <laughs> like, what kind of supervisor is this? But here, David is crying out to the Lord, don't give up on me. When it gets hard to scrub me clean, don't give up. And he's banking on the fact that the Lord's character is one of patience and faithfulness and commitment to those who he loves. And he's saying, Lord, don't give up. Scrub, clean, purify me. Do what it takes to get me well. And we see that in verse 10, he, he goes on to show the depths of his need. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Because what David is saying is really, this was a lot of bad behavior, but it comes from a bad heart. Because Christianity is not primarily about getting better and going from bad to good. It's primarily of going from death to life. And, and to think that we can just kind of do some behavioral modification to make things all right would be like to go to a house and to have the inspector tell you, yeah, um, termites have eaten the whole structure, the roof is caving in, and the pipes all need to be replaced. And you say, well, 
but maybe I could just do a little paint job, fix things up a bit. That would be foolish. And likewise, it would be foolish to think we could just change the outward appearance when what we really need is an entire renovation of our heart. And so David cries out, create in me a clean heart, O God. And so I want to encourage us to take the words of Psalm 51 as our own, to use these words to call out to the God who's abundant in mercy. And as we confess our sins, we're asking him to do deep work within us. Now, confession is this really weird thing that Christians do because what it really is is it's us going on record against ourselves. But in that, there's something incredibly freeing that happens. But hear me, because this is a tendency for those of us who, uh, who know that we're totally depraved and we've got depths of sin and whatnot. This is a tendency, and I wanna, I wanna speak to it real quick. Groveling is not the goal. Gladness in God is. And so confession is meant to lead us to a place of healing so that that healing can lead to happiness. In fact, confession is, is more like coming home than it is like morbid, introspective navel-gazing. Confession uh, is, is a way that we come back to God and we return to him. The goal of repentance is rejoicing over returning to God. All of Luke chapter 15 is about that. In fact, Richard Baxter, who's a Puritan pastor, he actually wrote the book called The Reformed Pastor, says this, penitent sorrow or confession is only a purge to cast out those corruptions which hinder you from relishing your spiritual delights. Use it, therefore, as medicine, only when there is need, and turn it not into your ordinary food. Delight in God is the health of your souls. And so confession is a means to an end. It's a means of, of asking God to cleanse us so that we can experience the joy of knowing him. And so with that, I want to look at how the happiness that results from healing actually brings heralding. How happiness brings heralding. Now, if you look with me at verses 8, uh, verse 8, it says this, let me hear joy and gladness. And if you go down a little further to verse 12, it says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And you can hear that David knows that the goal of confession is returning to a place of joy. And gladness. And this is amazing. Look at verse 12 again. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Now, why would sinners return to God unless they knew that they were going to be met with compassion and mercy? Why would the guilty go to the one who's gonna, who's gonna judge them and, and measure out their sentence, why would they go to that person unless they knew that amnesty was offered to them? And how will they know of God's mercy towards sinners unless we who have tasted it go and tell others about it? And how can we taste that mercy unless we ask for it with humble confession? And I think, ironically, the, the reason that most of us don't experience uh, an increasing joy in Jesus is because we don't confess our sins often enough. 
I think that if we were to return to a daily practice of confessing our sins, using the words of Psalm 51 or plenty of the other Psalms, we would actually experience, rather than God, his kind of dull, cold shouldering us that we, we live under most times, we would confess our sins to him and we would receive by faith the mercy he has towards sinners like you and me. And with that, as we confess with honesty, we would experience healing, which would lead to happiness that we would then herald to the world. How that works is kind of confusing. So C.S. Lewis, in his Reflections on the Psalms, says this. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. What he's saying is that when you hear good music, when you see a good movie, when you taste good food, you can't help but tell others about it. This is why Instagram exists, right? And, and so we tell people about the things that we enjoy, and that's just the normal flow of enjoyment to praise. And actually, the enjoyment is not complete until we praise it to others. And so as we increasingly experience God's mercy to heal us, we'll be led into a wholeness, a wholeness of happiness. And then we will go and that happiness will bubble and overflow in joy as we tell others where mercy can be found for sinners like you and I. Now, I left you hanging and I asked a question at the beginning and, and I wanna look at verse 14 because I think it gets at the heart of this question. Verse 14, David prays this. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Here's the question. How can God deliver from blood guiltiness and be praised as righteous or just? How can God simply overlook David's abuse and rape and murder and dismiss it? as though it wasn't a problem? How can God be displeased and yet dismissed? Well, the way that we have to see this is we have to see that the Psalms, Psalm 51 fits within the, the larger book of Psalms, which fits in the larger story of Scripture. And within that story comes one, a, a great-grandson of King David. And this great-great-great-grandson, uh, who was born of David and Bathsheba, comes on the scene. And he's a king who, unlike David, who sat on his couch, this king comes from heaven to earth to fight the ultimate battle for his people. He's a king who, unlike David, uh, doesn't use his power to manipulate and to rape, but uses his power to mend and restore. A king who, unlike David, doesn't kill others for his own sin, but is killed for the sins of others. King Jesus steps on the scene, the son of David, about a thousand years after David penned Psalm 51. And Jesus lays down his life and dies for the sins of his people. King Jesus dies for every lustful look like David's. He dies for every envy in our heart where we want what someone else has. He dies for the fact that we lie and then sometimes lie to cover up our lies. Jesus even dies for our lack of joy in his salvation. And so how can God 
be displeased and yet dismiss? Well, Romans 3 answers this question for us. It says this, in his divine forbearance, God had passed over former sins like David's. Former sins like David's. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how can God be displeased and yet dismiss? He doesn't dismiss at all. In fact, he deals with the sins of David and all of the rest of his people on his son Jesus on the cross. And so now God can remain righteous. And verse four can be true that he is blameless in his judgment. And so King Jesus is alive right now as a merciful, sympathetic, and just king, willing to receive mercy, mer- or sinners to his mercy like you and I. Now to wrap up, I like to tell quick stories that kind of make this more real. How does Psalm 51 work itself out in our lives? The first one comes from St. Augustine, who uh, a modern journalist, after studying his works, said this. It was as though uh, Augustine knew two different languages. The first was Latin, and the second was Psalms. Because Augustine was so steeped in the Psalms, everything he said when he preached or wrote, uh, when he was writing his confessions and other works, was just immersed and full of Psalms. And as Augustine was on his deathbed, he asked that somebody would bring paper so he could write Psalm 51 and paste it on the wall next to his bed. Because Augustine knew as he read this psalm, it, it penetrated the depths of his soul, but it also gave him the heights of God's mercy. And it would encourage him as he goes to face God, his, his judge, but also his justifier. And the second story comes from my own life. The reason Psalm 51 is so dear to me is because in college I became a Christian. And as I'm sure many of you know, becoming a Christian doesn't mean everything changes overnight. And so as I knew that Jesus had died for me, um, I still wasn't seeing that worked out in my life. And, And I needed words to confess my sin, particularly sexual sin. And somebody directed me to Psalm 51 and they said, you should read this and then pray it and use this as you go to God. And I was reading it and praying it. And as I got to Psalm 51, verse 17, and I read this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I was encouraged because while I I wasn't perfect and my life was changing very slowly, I knew that the sin I once loved now broke my heart and that I was contrite, and that I had a broken spirit, which according to the psalm says that that's the kind of sacrifice God accepts. And so I wanna encourage you, if you need healing in any way, if you're in a place where you're aware of how sin-sick your heart is, cry out in the words of Psalm 51, and let Jesus be your healer, and let Jesus be your happiness, and let Jesus be the one that you herald to a world desperate for mercy. And with that, let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would draw us to yourself through repentance and that we would trust in your abundant mercy. Holy Spirit, create in us a clean heart. Oh God, renew a right spirit within us. Jesus, let us hear joy and gladness. Restore to us the joy of your salvation that we might teach transgressors your ways. 
that sinners would return to you. You died and rose to offer mercy to all who come to you, whether the first time or the 500th time. Oh Lord, open our lips and our mouths will declare your prayer.